Welcome to the Tennis IQ Podcast. I'm Josh Berger. And I'm Brian Lomax. And in today's episode, we have a conversation with Marcus Daniel. Now, Marcus is an Olympic bronze medalist at the 2020 Olympics uh, from New Zealand with five ATP titles, quarterfinal appearances at both Wimbledon and the Australian Open, and numerous caps for the New Zealand Davis Cup team. He has been giving effectively since 2014, and on January 4th, 2021, Marcus took the Giving What We Can pledge to donate at least 10% of his annual winnings to effective organizations for the rest of his life. Alongside his tennis career, Marcus has completed a Bachelor of Arts from Massey University in Psychology and Spanish, and has been awarded the Arthur Ashe Humanitarian Award for his work with high-impact athletes, joining recipients such as Nelson Mandela and Roger Federer. Now, in this conversation, we talk to Marcus about his career, how he got to where he is, and especially about his work with high-impact athletes. We know that you are going to definitely enjoy this conversation with Marcus Daniel. So today, we're very excited to have Marcus Daniel on the Tennis IQ podcast. Thanks for joining us, Marcus. Thanks for having me, guys. Excited to chat. Awesome. Awesome. So um, we'll start this conversation in a way that we we often do by uh, learning a little bit more about your background and uh, and your introduction uh, to the sport of tennis. Yeah, so I, I grew up on a farm in New Zealand in the middle of nowhere. Um, so probably not the, the typical tennis background, but uh, luckily enough, the farmhouse had this old concrete tennis court out the back that had a bunch of weeds growing over it. But my parents would go out, especially summer evenings in New Zealand, uh, where we've got light until, you know, 10 p.m. Uh, after the day was finished, they'd, they'd go out and have a little hit around. Uh, they both played recreationally, I guess, competitively through their sort of school years and still in, enjoyed it and still enjoy it, actually, in, in their 70s, which is amazing. Um, and me being the youngest of three kids, uh, they wanted to tag along with the parents and get involved and I wanted to tag along with them. So from the age that I could walk, I was dragging a tennis racket around behind me and um, my mum, in order to keep me occupied for as long as possible, actually tied a, she put a tennis ball in the bottom of a pair of tied up stockings and then tied that to the roof. <laughs> and I would just stand there just batting this thing around for hours, uh, which was genius from her and something I think I'm going to carry on into, into whenever I become a parent. Um, so, yeah, that was, that was when I first started hitting tennis balls. And then uh, we moved closer to a small town for school when I was about four and started playing against other kids at, at the tennis center there. And the local coach saw something she liked and, and started giving me some coaching and, and it sort of blossomed from there. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. It's an amazing, go, it started go ahead, go that ahead. early. Right. And then yeah. and actually playing against kids, like when you were four, it's somewhat uh, reminiscent of like Brad Gilbert's story of playing. Like he mentioned how he played a ton of matches before he was 10, which yeah, can understand and, how he learned how to win by playing so many <laughs> matches so early. Yeah, it was it was very natural as well. Like my, my parents never pushed me into it. Uh, it was just something for fun. And it was, you know, something that I did for fun amidst so many other things, uh, so many other sports and, and, you know, adventures. And my parents were big um, or still are big sort of skiers and, and hikers and that sort of stuff. So it was, it was just another thing. But 
I think that helped me develop a real love for the fun side of tennis and, and that definitely helped me stick with it through through the tough times. Yeah. I mean, in other sports teach you so much about, you know, just neurologically, physically, et cetera, you know, and when people often think of New Zealand, they think of the all blacks and rugby and, you know, were there other sports that you also played growing up? Yeah, I, I played anything I could get my hands on. Uh, you know, I, I grew up skiing and snowboarding, um, started surfing at a pretty young age at sort of 11, uh, played soccer from a very young age and actually, uh, was in the national squad through until until I think just before I turned 15 and then sort of had to make a decision between the two. Uh, the, the New Zealand Soccer Federation said that if I wanted to stay in the squad, then I'd have to train year round because at that time I was just, I was playing tennis as my main summer sport and then soccer and basketball, like all sorts of other things around it. Um, so yeah, I played so many different things. Um, when I was growing up, I mean, even, you know, even things like motocross and um, bought a $50 wreck of a car when I was like 12 with a friend and just kept it in the paddock and learned how to drive and put out cones and raced around them. You know, it was a, yeah, a very diverse childhood, which I am incredibly grateful for. Um, and then when I was 15, narrowed in on tennis because I'd given up something that I really loved in, in soccer. Uh, so I thought, okay, if I've, if I've made that sacrifice, then I should probably start really putting some effort into making this a, a, a proper sort of professional journey. So was that around the time that you started to play pro tournaments in terms of futures and that sort of thing? It was a little earlier. Uh, so at that stage, I mean, I was very, very minimal in terms of how much training I was doing for, for each sport. Uh, you know, the town that I grew up near is maybe less than 20,000 people. So very little training. And so, you know, once a week, my mom and I would drive over to a slightly bigger city to get coaching. Um, but that's far less than, than what you'd expect of someone who's sort of 12, 13, 14. So when I decided to choose tennis over soccer, I moved up to a boarding school in Auckland uh, and I spent two years there training more than I ever had, you know, I was probably averaging, I don't know, an hour and a half to two hours a day, which looking back is still actually not a huge amount, but it was a big step for me. And then I felt like I was reaching the limits of what New Zealand could offer in terms of progress going into my final year of, of school. And so I made the decision. There was a Slovak coach living in New Zealand at the time that I was working with. Uh, he convinced me to move over to Slovakia. So I did my final year of school by correspondence from there and started playing futures and that sort of thing uh, in Europe when I was, yeah, that was when I was 17. Um, so yeah, there were a couple of years between making the decision before I started playing pro tournaments. I had read that um, if you could have done it over again, that maybe you would have gone to college in the US and, and, and developed your game there. What made you think that and what, what do you think how do you think college tennis may have benefited you uh, in your journey as a professional tennis player? Yeah, I, I think it's everyone has a different journey, but I would say that the vast majority of 17 year olds are not ready to play pro uh, for one thing physically. I mean, I definitely wasn't ready physically to play, to play pro. So the one thing that college does is it gives you time 
to still develop your game and play a ton of matches and feel pressure, but you're developing physically and there's less pressure than going out and trying to make a, a living on the pro circuit. Um, the other thing was S Slovakia was definitely a trial by fire, but if I, yeah, if I could do it again, having the knowledge that I have now, I would definitely go to college mainly for the physical development, uh, but also because I think it would be a huge amount of fun. Uh, and if you pick the right college, I think they have the right uh, incentives in place for their players, you know, like trying to develop players through those four years and, and have them come out the back as a better player rather than just trying to exploit whatever ability they have and, and get as many match wins out of them. Right. One mistake I made was, so I had, I had a fair amount of scholarship offers because uh, I was number one or number two in New Zealand at the time and had had some success playing very few junior tournaments, but, you know, had done reasonably well. Um, and coming from New Zealand and, you know, growing up in the ocean and on the mountains, the only university I visited was uh, University of Illinois and great university and lovely people and a good tennis team. Yeah. But for me, coming from New Zealand, the idea of spending four years on an absolute pancake surrounded by cornfields, I just couldn't, I couldn't imagine it. Um, and the other fear that I had at the time was that I'd, I'd get swept up into the college lifestyle and forget about sort of my goal of playing professional tennis. And that was not based in too much other than I hadn't seen New Zealand players come out the back of college and be very successful. But, you know, my era or a little bit before that, that was the era that produced, you know, the John Isners and the Steve Johnsons and, and those sorts of guys. So I think maybe I was just like a few years too early to really see that that was a, a really good option. Yeah, it seems like it's become even more of a, an option for players these days. And uh, I like how you phrased it, you know, in terms of seeing it as a development path um, and, and coaches not treating players as commodities or, you know, in a transactional way. I think it's really, uh, important. You know, Josh used to work for Todd Martin at the hall of fame, you know, and he's somebody who actually did it early on, right? He did two years of college tennis and, and became quite a good player at number four in the world. Um, tell us a little bit about, you know, your journey now, Marcus, you know, playing doubles and what's happening, you know, with your career at the moment. Yeah, so I, I shifted into a focus on doubles in twenty, end of twenty fourteen, I want to say, uh, and it was sort of organic. Like I, I was actually starting to play better singles than I ever had, but I'd just been plagued by injuries. I'd never played a full year, a full season of, of singles, so it was always you know make progress and then lose it all. Uh, and in twenty fourteen, I just won a singles futures and was in a very rare main draw of a challenger the next week. So I played on the Sunday in Great Britain and had to play again on the um, Tuesday or Wednesday in Canada. Uh, and I lost that first round match in, in Canada, but ended up winning the doubles. And there was a series of four challenges in a row where I was only main draw singles in the first one. The rest were qualifying. But four weeks in a row, I went semis or finals or win of the doubles. So I missed the qualifying of, of all of the rest of the tournaments. And so at the end of that series, my doubles was, I don't know, it was low 100s, like 120 or something like that. And my singles was 500. 
And the guy I played with, Artem Sitek at the time, he said, hey, we've, we've got to play more doubles tournaments together. And the same thing kept happening. I kept, uh, you know, the first tournament in a series, I'd play qualies, but then I'd miss the qualies of, of the next single. So at the end of the year, uh, I basically decided, you know, I'd rather play tour events and doubles than play qualies of challenges or try to, you know, go through the futures uh, circuit to get my singles up. And so 2015 was fully focused on doubles. And I'm really glad I made the decision. Um, you know, I think my game style is better suited to doubles. I was always more comfortable coming forward, uh, which is why the only two uh, singles titles I won were on grass. Um, and and on on what used to be shoddy grass and is, is now lovely grass, but you know, basically the worse the better for me. Um, and yeah, since then focused on doubles, had a pretty quick rise up to, you know, sort of the fifties in the world. And then injuries again, I mean, you know, I, I don't, like making excuses because uh, it's all part of doing well or not doing well in tennis. Um, but I feel like numerous times I've come really close to breaking into sort of the top 30 and being a consistent masters player and then have had to take sort of two, three, four months off and lose the ranking a little bit and then sort of try to build momentum again. So yeah, now I'm, uh, well, actually now I'm on crutches following a, a knee surgery uh, and I think basically this season's done for me. Um, but yeah, still still enjoying the, the double side of things. And uh, yeah, I, I find the camaraderie on the double side is, is a bit more fun as well. I think people are a little more relaxed and a little more, um, there's a bit more community, I think, because everyone's sort of played with each other or, or practiced with each other at some stage, which, which is a nice, nice thing as well. I think that's, that's interesting what you're saying about that you know, about the community and, you know, that you've probably played with many of the guys that you end up playing against. Um, could, could you tell us a little bit about uh, the Olympics last year? Um, it took place in 2021, but, um, you know, the, the 2020 Olympics, because um, I know that was a, a career highlight. Yeah, it's, it's uh, very much the standout highlight for me. Uh, I know a lot of tennis players would put winning a Grand Slam as bigger than the Olympics, but for me, it's it's a clear number one. I think that's maybe a product of growing up in New Zealand, where there's such a focus on the Olympics, and you know, it's just it's it's a really big deal here. Uh, and you know, I mean, the first Olympics I played was Rio, and it was just an incredible experience. And we lost a heartbreaker in the first round against the Canadian team. We had match points in the third set tiebreaker, and. They went on to play for bronze. So Mike Venus and I were gutted and desperate to have another shot at it. And so we were, you know, we were pumped that we, we qualified for Tokyo. What happened in the meantime was COVID. Um, and for me, that meant that I was locked out of New Zealand, essentially. Uh, you know, New Zealand's borders were closed and I couldn't get back for almost a couple of years. And so by the time July 2021 rolled around, I was exhausted. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd basically been on tour for 15 months straight and I was, I was feeling pretty burnt out. You know, it's like if you, don't, if you don't have the option to go to the place where you recharge your batteries, you just get depleted. Um, so that was sort of the, the mental space that I was in going into the Olympics. And I actually took 
three or four days in Connecticut with my in-laws just trying to really let go of everything and just like not look at the tennis rackets and immerse myself in nature just to try and sort of clear my head before going to the Olympics because it means so much to me to to represent New Zealand especially at you know at that what I consider to be the the pinnacle of sport um and so that yeah I, I got to Tokyo got into the environment and the New Zealand team and the support team there are just incredible the amount of culture that they bring in um and the amount of sort of team spirit or there's a, a Maori term called mana that they bring in is just it's phenomenal. It's very, very special. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen the haka that the, the All Blacks yes. do. So they welcome athletes coming into the village with, with a haka. And it's just like your hairs are standing up. It's the most powerful thing to, to be on the receiving end of. Um, and so immediately I was, you know, I was in it and I was buoyed up and I was like, okay, you know, I'm, I really want to put absolutely everything I have into doing something special here. And in the end, you know, it, it turned into a bronze medal, which was, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be holding on to the, to the memory of that and the footage of that for, for the rest of my life. And I was a sobbing wreck for about half an hour after, after the match finished. And, um, you know, it was sort of all of the previous 18 months of, of trial washed in at one time. And yeah, it was just, it was magic. Was there a different pressure? performing in an Olympic environment than say a pro tournament environment? Absolutely. It's for me, it's completely different because we get very few chances to play for our country. You know, now there's ATP cup Davis cup and, and the Olympics more or less. And for New Zealand, unless we have a, an, a huge surge of talent over the next 10 years, we're never going to play the ATP cup because we don't have a, a top 16, top 20 singles player. Um, so for us, it's Davis Cup and Olympics and even Davis Cup. I mean, every, every time I put a, a silver fern on, uh, yeah, I, I feel like I pick up a, or put a lot more pressure on myself because I'm, I'm proud of New Zealand. I'm proud of what this country stands for. Um, and I want to, I want to do it proud. Like I want to, you know, I want to be a good representative of, of the country. That makes a lot of sense. That, that definitely does. Um, well, why don't we transition a little bit um, to talking about um, high impact athletes? I know that was you know one of the big reasons um, you know we, we wanted to talk today. Um, so we'd love to to hear more. And I know Marcus, you and I were talking a little bit um, before we started recording, um, but we, we'd love to hear more about you know the the idea behind high impact athletes and and how it started. Yeah, sure. So this is. Uh... It's sort of the end result of a many year journey for me, um, which actually started around the same time that I started focusing on doubles. So 2014 was the first year in my career where I actually didn't lose money. You know, like tennis expenses are huge. And at the lower levels of professional tennis, you're reliant on basically people's goodwill to keep the dream alive. Um, so for the first time that year, I ended the year with more money in the bank than when I started. And with, with that little bit of financial security and this feeling that, I, okay, I can actually make a living out of the sport, particularly given that I was going to focus on doubles the next year. And I felt like I could, you know, play bigger tournaments on the double side. I had this really strong urge to, to give back in some way because sport in general is selfish and 
that's just a, it's it's an inherent aspect of sport. I mean, even even in a team sport, you're pushing yourself to be in the starting lineup ahead of someone else. And in tennis, even more so, you know, for me to succeed in my career, someone else has to lose. It's, it's very much a zero sum game. And I like that about sport. It's what fires up the competitive juices in me. But at the same time, off court, that doesn't align completely, completely with, with sort of how I want to live my life or who I want to be as a person. So when I first felt like I had this uh, ability to give back or to balance the scales, I wanted to. And I really didn't know how, you know, the, the charities that I'd grown up around, like World Vision doing sort of the 40 hour famine when I was a kid, um, they didn't, they didn't resonate enough with me. So I just started doing some research, jumped online like any good millennial and uh, typed in like how to give back best or something like that. Eventually came across this, this philosophy called effective altruism, which is the idea that everything you put towards doing good in the world, you should try to maximize every unit of resource in terms of its impact in the world. And that's such a no brainer, right? Like everything we do in, in, in the aspects of our lives that we want to be progressive in, we, we think that way about like, if I'm on a tennis court, I'm thinking, how can I get the most improvement in my game out of the next 10 minutes or out of the next hour in business? We think, uh, how can I get the biggest return on this next hundred dollars that I'm going to invest? And in charity, it just makes sense to think the same way, but for whatever reason, it's quite an uncommon thought pattern in the charity space. But anyway, so this, this just really turned a light bulb on in my head, it really resonated with, with sort of how I approach things. So I started donating, uh, in 2014, I made a 1% pledge of my income towards the most effective charities in the world in 2015 and like built that percentage up over the years. And then when COVID hit in 2020, the tour stopped. And for the first time since I was, you know, probably 17, since I went to Slovakia, I had a few months in one place to think about my place in the world and, you know, the impact that I wanted to make on the world. And I realized that I could be doing more. So I felt like I was maxing out how much I was donating. I think at that stage, I think that year I was, I'd already committed 8% at the start of the year and ended up donating more than 10%. So I like, especially cause I didn't know how much money I was going to end up making in 2020. I felt like I couldn't extend that, but the side that I could really make a huge improvement on was advocacy. Like, if you just convince one other person to start donating to the most effective charities, you've just doubled your own impact. And that just, that branches out exponentially. Like if, if more people start talking about the idea of giving effectively, then it just, it can have a huge snowball effect. So this was the, the realization that led to high impact athletes was how can I be the best advocate for this idea possible? And high impact athletes is like, okay, let's create a rallying point, an organization, a movement, a community, of athletes who can use their voice and use whatever resources they have available to put towards the idea of giving as effectively as possible, where a dollar might do a hundred times more good at one charity than, than another charity. So yeah, that was, that was the conception of high impact athletes. And it was, you know, it was, it was a lot of work going from idea to product. Um, and so I think I had the idea in June, 2020 and 
put a lot of work into it over the rest of that year and we launched December 2020. And um, it's been really incredible watching it blossom and, and grow into something that's already a, an amazing community. There must have been a lot of personal work too, though, Marcus, in terms of like coming to that understanding of what is my place in the world, what what purpose can I bring, and you know, giving back. And um, were there some formative experiences as a young person that you think fostered that sense of wanting to give back? Because I'm not sure everybody necessarily would have had that sort of thought or epiphany in in their tennis career. What do you think really helped drive that for you? Yeah, I think I think it's actually a lot of it is probably down to one guy called Peter Singer. And he's a philosopher. He's uh, a very he's actually considered the most influential philosopher alive today. He's an Australian guy, um, spends his time between teaching at a university in Melbourne and, and uh, teaching at Princeton over in the States uh, on bioethics, like basically what is the, the right way or the best way to live our lives. And I was doing some, I, I did a university degree, sort of a distance degree um, in my early 20s. And I was doing some philosophy papers and I came across this guy and I just thought his writing and his arguments were so clear and so compelling. And so I started reading some of his books. And the one that really changed me was called The Life You Can Save. And it's the idea that especially anyone who's born in a high income country has won the birth lottery. Like we are just so fortunate. And the reality is that most of the world is far worse off than we are. And if we commit a completely trivial amount of our wealth or our resources, to helping those people who are so much worse off than us, we can have a huge impact. We can have a life-changing and even a life-saving impact for many people over the course of our lives without even changing the quality, quality of our own lives. And this idea, it's like a punch in the face for me anyway. Um, you know, he's, he's got this, this analogy where you're walking to work in the morning and you're wearing uh, a nice suit and a nice pair of shoes that you bought recently and you, 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 they cost quite a lot and you're quite proud of them. And you're walking past this shallow pond and you see a small child drowning and you see that they can't get themselves out of this situation. So someone's going to have to go in to save this child. And the question is, do you go in and help the child or because you're wearing this nice new suit that you bought, do you walk past? And I mean, you know, everyone's answer to that question is, of course, I walk in and help the child, you know, and the punch in the face moment is, well, for a similarly trivial amount of money, we could literally save lives at the cost of a pair of shoes. Um, and yeah, this, um, you know, I, I grappled with this for many years before I felt like I could really do something about it myself, but it's that style of thinking and, and that philosophy that that led me to really wanting to use my luck and my privilege and my place in the world to, to try and balance the scales a little. I, I think that's amazing. I really do. And it's, um, you know, I, I've, I, I'm a li somewhat familiar with, um, you know, some of his writings and uh, I, I think, you know, when, 
when you think about it that way, that, you know, of course, if you were in that situation, you saw somebody suffering right in front of you and you could, you know, you knew you could make that impact um, for, a you know, quite a small cost, of course you would do it. Yet sometimes when, you know, when it's on the other side of the world, or maybe you can't see that impact firsthand, you know, people are less, um, yeah, less willing or, or don't necessarily take the, the initiative to, to make it happen. Um, so w- when you talk about, you know, the, the most effective charities um, and really how they, how they make an impact, can you, um, you know, can you give some examples or tell, you know, tell us sort of, you know, if it was a $50 donation or a hundred dollar donation, um, what that, what that could really mean, what, what type of impact that could have? Yeah, for sure. And I'm first, I'm going to turn this back on you guys. So if you had to guess, if you had to guess how much more effective or impactful per dollar, the best charities in the world are compared to an average charity, what, what would you guys guess? So like a percentage wise, more, more like a, like a a two X, a five X, a 10 X more impactful, the best charity versus the average charity. Probably a hundred X. I'll say, I'll say 20x. Yeah, so you guys are actually in the right direction because in, in general, a survey shows that it, most people guess between two and a half to three and a, three and a half times more impactful, the best charities versus average charities. In reality, it can be literally hundreds, if not thousands of times more impactful to donate, to donate the same amount of money to one place versus another place. And to give you an example, so for, for example, uh, $100 donated to Project Healthy Children or, or otherwise called Sanku, that can give vital micronutrients to 188 kids for a year. So that's 188 kids who have vastly improved health for a year for 100 bucks. Or the example that I use that can be a little inflammatory is in the States, it can cost around $50,000 to train a seeing eye dog uh to to help a blind person navigate the world and you don't just have to train the dog you have to train the dog and the human to work together so it's it's quite a costly process and it's beautiful right like this is a we can agree that it's a good cause and it's really useful and helpful and and beautiful but for the same amount of money for fifty thousand dollars if you donate to something like the helen keller international foundation they will help thirty seven thousand kids and prevent early onset blindness and 37,000 kids for the same price. So if you have this option of helping one human and one dog versus helping 37,000 kids in the poorest countries in the world, to me anyway, it's a no brainer where I would donate. And the thing that I think is missing is very few people know or understand that these opportunities exist that purely by donating to a different charity, to a more cost-effective charity, they can make hundreds or thousands of times more impact with their dollars. And the the vision for high-impact athletes is our athletes have huge followings, right? Like as a collective, we have a big voice, we have a megaphone. And the more people we can make aware of the idea of making more impact per dollar and show them the options where they can do that, then the better um and yeah so i mean you know if if we can get this message in front of hundreds of millions of people and we only move the needle 
you know, 5%, then that's still a huge life change for many hundreds of thousands or millions of people or animals around the world, which, you know, I, I get excited thinking about it. When you evaluate charities that are, you know, effective, um, and I think the only reason maybe I was somewhat in the right direction on your question was that I, when I first started working in the corporate world in the early 90s, it was for a bank, and they encouraged all of us to give to a particular charity. It was only one that we could do, and but they showed us the breakdown of the costs of like what where the money would go, and I was really shocked at how much was going to what they called administrative costs. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, a large percentage of the donation was going there. How much of the, maybe this is more in the weeds, I guess, with effectiveness, but how much are you looking at that in terms of what, you know, how, how if I'm giving $100, how much of that 100 is actually getting to the place I want to give to? Yeah, that's that's an important question. And and one one thing I want to make really clear is I'm not the one evaluating the charities. I don't consider myself an expert on what makes one charity so much better than another. We're really lucky that in this space, there are the most rigorous and stringent charity evaluators in the world who we have partnered with. And it's their research, which is all publicly available that we rely on. So anyone who has any question about why does high impact athletes feature X charity, but not Y charity. Uh, if you have a problem with the research, then, you know, if you can find a flaw, I'm sure the research organizations would be really excited about it because they're constantly updating their thinking and, and reevaluating. Um, and it's, it's funny, it's funny, your, your story, uh, the gold standard charity evaluator in, in the world is, is a thing called GiveWell. And GiveWell was started by two Bridgewater anal analysts uh, who wanted to give away a bunch of their money and started calling uh, various charities saying, hey, we want to give you X hundred thousands of dollars per year. Can you tell us what you're going to do with it? And we're really frustrated by the answers. So they thought, you know what, we actually really need to do some research on what the best charities are and what they're actually going to do. Uh, and that was the the inception of GiveWell. And, um, yeah, so overhead costs are important, right? Like you don't want too much, too much being taken off a donation to go towards a CEO's Porsche or whatever. Like this, that's just an absolute no brainer. But taking it a step further, the thing that effective altruism and that these uh, charity evaluators like GiveWell focus on is not just how much gets spent on overheads, but it's how much impact is actually uh, long-term achieved by the intervention. So most charities, they focused on how many interventions do we uh, deploy? And that's a useful metric, right? Because you'd assume that the more interventions deployed, the more good done in the world. But if it's the case that, you know, 10 years down the line, the interventions have either been useless or only marginally impactful, it doesn't really matter that much. What really matters is the outcome. Have people's lives been improved by this? Are people suffering less because of this intervention? And it's that extra step that a lot of charities don't take. So measuring overheads, measuring interventions, and most essentially, I would say actually more important than, than overheads or interventions is what is the outcome of the charity one year, five years, 10 years down the line? And is that going to continue being the case with, with each intervention deployed? And 
I mean, you can go so deep into the weeds on the research, like GiveWell spend over 20,000 research hours a year trying to find the best charities in the world. They've evaluated many thousands. I think they've been in existence somewhere around 15 years and they've only ever highly recommended nine. So this is, this gives you an example of how, how ruthless they are in their standards. And as a, as an absolute baseline, full transparency is required because if at Bridgewater, they were going to go and analyze a company, but the company was like, well, no, you can't see this, this 30% of our records. They'd say, well, how can you expect us to invest? It's the same for charities. Like everything has to be transparent in order to evaluate properly. So I have full faith in their research and, and knowing how much thought and rigor goes into their evaluations. I mean, I think it's the most confidence you can have in the charity space in, in terms of where to donate your dollars. Yeah. Um, so with, uh, with high impact, with high impact athletes, um, can you give us a sense for, uh, how it's blossomed within the last, you know, since launching it in 2020 and, and, you know, where, where it's at right now with, you know, some of the athletes that have gotten involved and, and where you see that the future of it going? Yeah, sure. So since, I mean, honestly, I thought it was just going to be me pestering my friends to, to sort of donate to, to these charities I believe in, uh, it very quickly became something much more than that. Uh, so in, we've been in existence a little over 18 months now, and we have over a hundred world-class athletes across, I think 30 something sports and around 30 different countries. Um, some of the biggest tennis names, uh, Stefano Tsitsipas, uh, Diego Schwartzman, Kevin Anderson, who just recently retired, Milos Raonic, who's been struggling with injuries for a long time. Um, I mean, new, I think we've got, you know, 60 to 70 tennis players on board, I think. Um, and on the women's side, uh, I think the top ranked we have is, is Christina McHale. We've got a lot of really top women's doubles players. Obviously, I, my personal relationships are more on the double side. And then we've got, you know, like Olympic champions. Um, we've got the likes of Joseph Parker, who's a world heavyweight boxing contender. I think he's ranked number four in the world in boxing. Uh, Great Britain's flag bearer in Tokyo, who's the most decorated female sailor ever, Hannah Mills. Uh, so it's a really diverse cross section, section of athletes. And recently, actually, we've just started um, speaking to people in the US team sport. So we, we recently just added our first NFL and MLB players um, and NHL. And in the pipeline, I, I don't want to say this is 100%, but I think we've got our first NBA player. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's been incredible watching it grow and, and seeing the thing that I love is seeing this click moment that athletes have when I speak to them about like, that makes so much sense. Like just the idea of optimizing charity, the same way that athletes optimize every other aspect of their sporting lives. Um, and yeah, it's, it's like creating a platform of trust. And I, I think being an athlete myself and being able to say, I've been doing this for years and I'd, I'd love for you to join me is, has, has been a powerful thing. It seems like the NBA and, and even the WNBA would be great leagues for you because they tend, at least in US sport, to be the more active ones with respect to social justice and social causes. So I think that that could really open up things. I'm curious, Marcus, if we bring it back to you a little bit, you know, with this more evolved sense of purpose and your place in the world, um, 
you know, purpose is an important part of the mental game that's not always emphasized, but I think it has changed other players' careers and how they approach the game, how they approach success and winning and losing. I'm curious how that's affected you. It's, it's uh, quite honestly been life-changing for me. Uh, and it was the, for me, it was the moment when I first made a percentage pledge. It completely shifted my perspective on tennis and my relationship to tennis. Because like any, I mean, every person, but I think maybe more accentuated in sport, it's such a rocky relationship. I mean, a sport like tennis, your career is built on whether you win or lose. And it's ups and downs, it's ones and tens. Uh, but the moment I made a percentage pledge, what that meant was that every little bit that I improved and every extra match that I won was great for me and it was also great for something so much bigger than me. So it was like I was playing for, for the world, essentially. And I mean, that sounds grandiose, but... Yeah. So, so my particular passion point is, is animal welfare. So the, the majority of my donations go towards animal welfare at this stage. So it's like, you know, with every extra match that I won, that could be hundreds of animals who get a better life. And, you know, when you're playing for something like that, I mean, it, it keeps you motivated. It's, and the other thing that's beautiful to see is I think this idea, high impact athletes, and especially this idea of pledging a percentage, it resonates more with athletes who are a little later in their careers, because when you're young, you're just so hungry and you just want to make it like you want to get to the high level and it's all shine and polish and you're just happy to be there. And you're just like soaking in every new tournament that you go to or, or that sort of thing. Once you've been there for a while, you start thinking, what's the deeper meaning behind this? Like, what, what am I doing in life or what's the purpose and adding something like a percentage pledge or adding a four purpose piece that's tied directly to your career that gives something back to athletes, something huge. And this is an aspect that we probably haven't focused on enough because we're, you know, most of the time it's an ask from the athlete to the charity, but at the same time, it's giving them something back. That's pretty huge as well. Um, at least, you know, speaking for myself, I, I can say it was, it was a really pivotal moment for me. That's that that really makes a lot of sense, and it it's it's amazing. I mean, it's I you know I, I know we want to commend you for for everything that you've done, and and just I'm you know couldn't be more excited to see see the direction that it goes in, and you know hopefully through you know more and more people hearing about it um you know will continue to grow and make more and more of an impact and i know you know also wanted to to note you were you were named by the atp the 2021 arthur ash humanitarian of the year which is um quite you know quite an honor and uh you know i, I think it's you know really, really remarkable what, what you've started here so uh I think that's that's really really amazing. Um, I know we're we're getting close to the end of our of our time here. Um, Brian, was there any any last questions that uh, that you wanted to ask before we wrap up? I just wanted to you know uh, affirm what you just said, Josh, and um, it was wonderful having you here, Marcus. And um, be great to follow up with you in the future and, and and so forth. I think purpose is such an important topic for athletes. Like you said, you you're actually giving something back in that regard to them as well. And uh, 
it can really impact how you approach your sport and your training and what you're doing and um, could even be freeing of some of the pressures that you may feel. And I'm sure you have, have felt that as well. So thank you for being here. Oh, thanks. You. Thank you, guys. I, I really enjoy talking about this stuff and, you know, getting below the surface and, and thinking about things. So I, I enjoyed this chat. I appreciate you having me on. Well, that was a, a really, really powerful conversation. Uh, I would say th there were probably two two big takeaways that I had. Two of the, um, two of the biggest were that um, first, just hearing what a huge impact a donation can make. Um, he gave the example of what a hundred dollar donation could do um, when sent to certain types of charities and just really seeing the impact. And again, looking at, you know, how there are organizations that really measure, measure these things in terms of what sort of an impact this donation can make and how many people it can impact um, around the world in developing countries or, um, or, or even closer to home, but just, you know, looking at what a hundred dollar donation or a $50 donation can do is um, really remarkable. So I'm glad that he brought up some of those statistics because it, they're, they're shocking. And it, I think it, um, it, it just shows what an impact people can make with their, with their money. Um, so that, that was, that would be the first thing. And just the second is, um, and I think Marcus found this, um, through his own life and his own career, but it sounds like both him and many of the other athletes who have gotten involved in high impact athletes um, have really found that purpose and, and have, you know, found that, you know, life is more than just um, their rankings and, you know, winning prize money and, you know, their fame, but um, it can be a lot, it can be about a lot more than that. It can be about, you know, what sort of impact, how can you use your platform? How can you use your, you know, your wealth and your resources really to make a difference? And, uh, you know, got to commend Marcus for really starting this. And uh, it, it's amazing how this has really started to spread and grow and, uh, and the impact that it's making. I think that was the most powerful point for me as well, Josh. And, and we have to remember that tennis players, um, you know, they're human beings first, and we're all participating in this human experience, and we experience it differently. And I think Mark has made the point that a lot of the people who are getting involved in high-impact athletes are perhaps players later in their careers or athletes becoming, you know, as they're getting wiser, getting more perspective on the world and where they fit in. And I think it's great that athletes want to have a bigger impact, something that goes beyond just being a, a basketball player or a tennis player. So often in our culture where we just sort of pigeonhole people into certain roles and don't value their ability to participate in the full human experience as they wish they want, as, as they want to, right? And so I think Marcus now has, has transcended that and is giving other athletes an avenue to help them transcend that and bring more meaning and purpose to their lives and, and have a, an impact on others in the world. And I think that that's, that's a really fantastic thing. I think it's really inspiring. I hope that our listeners are also inspired by that message. Um, and to know, you know, for those of us, especially living in places like the United States or Western Europe, um, you know, for the most part, we're pretty privileged to be in the position that we're in. And uh, if we can be you know, changing our relationship to other people and, and other cultures in such a way that we can make a positive impact, uh, then, you know, then should feel free to do that. And uh, I think Marcus is doing some great work and giving people an avenue to do it. So 
Um, really great conversation. Totally agree with you, Josh. So that's our show for today. Again, thank you to Marcus Daniel for joining us, and thank you for listening. For more on today's episode, please check out the show notes. If you have any feedback or questions for me and Josh, please email us at tennisiqpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use the t- Twitter hashtag tennisiq. Additionally, please subscribe to the show on your podcast platform of choice, including YouTube, so you can be notified of new episodes. You can also check out our Instagram account. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you soon in our next episode.